Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Listener, you're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with audio adaptations of three rounds of frightening fiction about unexpected resurrections, space-time terrors, and frightening finales. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and tonight I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring the frightening fiction of Dimitri Viegas, Richard Saxon, and the Vespers Bell to life are voice talents Gemma Louise, Chris Heron, and Tanya Hadro. All of them contestants in Chilling Tales for Dark Nights' fifth annual Evil Idol Horror Voice Acting Competition. If you enjoy their performances tonight, visit our YouTube channel and vote on theirs and other entries in the competition. The first round is on now, and there's plenty more to come to send shivers down your spine all spooky season long. So, check out our channel and join in the deliciously dark fun yet to come. Again, you can find Chilling Tales for Dark Nights in the Evil Idol competition on YouTube. Just search Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube on any search engine. Or visit ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click the Evil Idol link on the navigation to see a current roster, contestant profiles, and links to all of the performances thus far. 
We and the candidates appreciate your support. Now, get your ticket ready, take your seat in our theater of the minds, and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. <laughs> Our first tale tonight was written by Dimitri Villegas and is performed by Evil Idol 2020 contestant number five, Gemma Louise. In it, we'll meet a young woman going through an impossible situation and we'll discover why sometimes, every now and then, death is a blessing and not a curse. Without further ado, I present to you, Mama Won't Stay Dead. My sister didn't come to the funeral, and I honestly didn't blame her one bit. There, towards the end of Mom's life, things had gotten unbearably rough. I took a semester off of college to stay home and help Dad out during Mom's last few months, finding myself stuck in the hometown that I mostly tried to avoid visiting during the school year. It had felt too much like a ghost town, and held too many secrets that I'd rather just leave dead and buried. It was just this past summer that we had realised something was wrong with Mom. You see, she was a singer. She wouldn't allow a single moment of silence in the house without filling it with some kind of song. Hell, some of my earliest memories is her standing at the kitchen sink, singing that damned musical song. Mama Mia, here I go again. My, my, how can I resist ya? I had been home for summer break, doing my best to avoid going into town doing my best to avoid seeing any of those old faces. It was morning, and Mom was in the kitchen cooking pancakes while I waited at the kitchen table, reading a book. She'd been singing that damn song again, but she had stopped. Mamma mia, here I go again. Hi, hi. Hi, hi. No. It didn't even register with me at first. I'd been buried nose-deep in some book that had been assigned for the next semester, trying my best to get ahead of the curve. Hi, hi, there I go again. N no, bye, bye. I didn't realise something was wrong until I smelled the pancakes burning. Just like the batter, the memory burns. Getting up and seeing my mother standing there at the stove, face twisted in confusion, staring down at the pancakes. Hi, hi, bye-bye, Mamma Mia. My dad and I thought it had been a stroke. We rushed her to the hospital, and after hours of waiting around and having several tests done, we were given the horrible news that Mom had early-onset dementia. The mother I knew was slowly becoming lost in her own mind, deteriorating. It had been strange for me. Mom had always been the one to know how to take care of the cuts, bruises the scraped knees of my childhood. But how could I help her with this? During the early days, my sister had been there. It was the easy days. Mom still had a few clear moments. Moments where she would sing and get most of the words right. It was always hard during those days because it would always give you that feeling that maybe she would be able to make it back. Make it back out of that haze. Mom got to the point where she couldn't sleep or at least she couldn't sleep at regular hours. So at night, we would take her to her bedroom and turn the television on for her. Dad had gone to what was probably the last radio shack in America and bought some radios. 
one for mom, one for me and him, and one for my sister. Mom's had the talk button taped down, so if anything did come up, we would hear it and come to help. My dad and I slept in the living room with our radio, and my sister slept in her bedroom with the other. Most nights, the only sounds coming through the bedroom radio would be Mom just muttering, sometimes singing lightly. Mamma mia. Hi, hi. My sister left the night we were all woken up by Mom's screams through the radios. We had turned on all the lights in the house and surrounded my mom with consoling words, telling her that it was going to be alright, that it was just a bad dream, that everything was going to be fine. And my mom grabbed hold of my sister's arm and through a sobbing fit said, It's taking everything from me. My sister yanked her arm from my mother's grip. You could see a white outline on her forearm where my mom's hand had been. She had her things packed the very next morning. I was furious. How could she just leave me and Dad? How could she leave Mom? I yelled and followed her all the way out to the car, where she opened the door and told me her hand was so cold. Things got exponentially worse from there. Mom couldn't do any simple tasks on her own, like eating or going to the bathroom. It hadn't been much longer when she started forgetting who me and my dad were. But you just had to get through days like that. You just had to. Had to for Mom. There were moments where she still tried to sing towards the end, but she just kept saying that it was taking her words. Taking her words away from her. Taking her words because it wanted them for itself. I thought she was just talking about the dementia, but after she passed, I realised that it had been something else. The house was quiet the day after the funeral. It was just me and Dad, and the 50 pounds of food that family and neighbours had gifted us. The fuck are we going to do with all this? My dad had said. I didn't know. I didn't have the answers anymore. I was fresh out. We mostly stayed in the living room, because it was still just too painful to be anywhere else in the house. Mom had been a decorator, and her touch had been laid everywhere. So Dad and I stayed in the living room, eating cobbler and watching TV with the volume low, and mostly in silence. We had the radio still sitting there on the end table. I woke up sometime in the middle of the night, with a bad cramp in my neck from having fallen asleep sitting upright on the couch. I was disoriented, not knowing when exactly I'd fallen asleep, and having only the light from the television to see where I was. After some of my night visions started coming to me, I looked over and saw my dad on the couch. He seemed to be sitting upright on the couch, and I couldn't tell if his eyes were open or closed. I sat in the darkness staring at his face, waiting for a moment that the television would flash some bright light so I could see if he had been awake. And once it did, I saw that his eyes were open. I said at normal volume, Dad? and his head turned quickly to me, and he raised an index finger to his lips. He didn't make the sound, but I knew what he was trying to make. Shh. Confused, I looked back to the television and saw that my dad was lowering the volume. Once the volume was almost muted, I had heard what he must have heard. Looking at the radio on the end table, you could see it light up, picking up some kind of noise from Mother's bedroom. I couldn't hear anything, but together my dad and I sat in the living room, illuminated only by the occasional flashes of light from the television, staring at the radio picking up some kind of feedback. 
I thought that's all it was. Just some kind of static. Nothing at all. And I was almost about to get up and turn it off when I heard what my dad must have heard. Mamma mia. Bye bye. Mamma mia. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. It was so light. I had almost thought that I was imagining it at first. But when I looked to my dad and saw that grave look on his face, I had known that he had heard it too. He got up and started making his way out of the living room, down the hallway to where Mom's bedroom was. I couldn't believe it. I just wanted to get up and leave. Go back to college. Go back to my life before Mom had started getting sick. I felt myself getting up off the couch too, feeling like I was still inside some kind of dream. I followed my dad out of the living room and into the hallway lined with photos of our family. All happy, all smiles, lovely eyes all around. Lovely eyes watching me and my dad inch slowly towards the closed bedroom door. You could hear it, there in the hallway. Could hear them muttering. Mamma mia, mamma mia, bye bye. My dad put a hand on the doorknob, twisted and pushed open, with me right behind him. And we saw her, dancing around in the moonlight. She'd stripped off the dress she'd been buried in and tossed it in the corner of the bedroom. It was covered in dirt and grime. She'd put on one of her nightgowns and was twirling around in the bedroom, lightly singing. Mamma mia, bye bye. My dad stepped into the bedroom and was just about to say, Hon? And it all happened so quick from there. It had stopped singing, stopped dancing, and it had turned on its heels in such an unnatural way. Facing Dad and me, its eyes not pointing in the same direction as one or the other. And it was on my dad, tackling him to the ground. His shoulder collided with my face, busting my lip and knocking me down too. Dizzied, I got up on my elbows and saw what looked like my mom on top of my dad. Her hands wrapped around his throat. He was clawing at her face, trying to get her off of him. I saw his thumb hook one of her nostrils and the other plunge into one of her eye sockets. I could hear him gurgling as the thing choked the life from him, and I could see him looking up at me from the ground. I got up and I punted the thing that looked like my mom right in her nose. I felt her nose cave in and heard the crunch. It felt like I had stubbed my toes on an end table, but she was off of him. The thing that looked like my mom landed sprawled on her back in the bedroom. I limped over to my dad and got him up off the ground. I wanted to just take him and get the hell out of the house, but he wanted to see what it was that had snatched my mother's skin. We walked back into the bedroom and saw it, laying there. The skin bubbled and the bones underneath crumbled, and it fizzled and popped. It made me sick to my stomach, but I couldn't stop watching. It fizzled like spilled soda right into the carpet, and it was gone. My dad and I packed small suitcases, grabbed a few platters of food from the kitchen, and we got a hotel room down the street. We didn't sleep the rest of the night, instead we just laid in our twin beds, watching infomercials on the television. We didn't say a word to each other until the sun came up, and even then it was just to ask for the television remote. Dad showered and I tried to stomach some of the leftovers, but couldn't manage. I thought about calling my sister 
but thought against it. What was she going to do? Somewhere around 2pm today, I had fallen asleep. I woke up about an hour ago to find my dad sitting at one of the small tables in the hotel room. The hotel blinds were drawn, but I knew it was late at night. He had brought the radio with him, and she was singing again. Mamma mia, bye bye, bye bye, bye bye. He wants to go back. I don't want to, but I can't let him go back alone. It's been singing for the past hour. It's like it's taunting us. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish, or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed Mama Won't Stay Dead. As written by Dimitri Viegas and voiced by Evil Idol 2020 contestant number five, Gemma Louise. Up next... We've got a second sinister story for you, written by author Richard Saxon, and performed by Evil Idol 2020 contestant number four, Chris Heron. In it, we'll meet a gentleman at the end of his rope, but as we'll soon discover, his time is far from up, whether he likes it or not. Without further ado, I present to you, listen to the sounds of your extinction. My hands trembled as I pressed the cold metal against my own temple. I was ready to go, but I needed another minute to deal with the finality of it all. I wanted death, and I'd made damn sure the gun wouldn't jam on me. All I needed to do was to pull the trigger. You don't want to do that, I heard a voice say. I jumped from my chair and swung the gun around the room in panic. As always, the motel room was empty, save for the ancient television and moist bed. There was no one there. At first, I wondered if the sound had come from outside. Maybe they hadn't been talking to me at all. Once the initial shock had worn off, I sat back down. Don't do it, Gary, the same voice said. Still, the room was empty. Who? Who's there? I stuttered. I stood back up and scanned the room. I basically spun around in circles as I tried to comprehend where the voice had come from. Then, as I prepared to finally end my own existence, 
I saw someone standing in the corner. He was a sickly, pale, elderly man with a thin frame. He was dressed in an impeccably tailored suit and didn't seem the least bit phased when I pointed my gun at him. In fact, he just smirked. Get the fuck out of my room! I demanded with a trembling voice. The man just gave me a peculiar look. You're afraid of me, he half asked, half stated. The question froze me in place for a moment. There was a strange man in my room that had seemingly materialized out of thin air, and he had the audacity to ask if I was afraid? Why? He continued. I don't have any money or anything, but I'll fucking shoot you unless you leave, I said back. What are you afraid of? What were you planning to do before I arrived? None of your business. You were moments away from what you considered blissful death. What could I possibly do that frightens you? He was right. Though I'd planned to kill myself, I was scared. Not from death itself, yet something about the man just sent shivers down my spine. Are you depressed? Is that why you want to leave the world behind? He asked. I shook my head. Yet you so desperately want to die. The fear I'd felt as he arrived had been replaced by morbid curiosity. Something about his utterly calm appearance made it impossible to refuse his questions. I just... I don't actually... I... You feel like you don't belong? These simple words sent a wave of sudden realization through my body. I thought about death a lot, but I could never pinpoint exactly why I wanted out. But as he uttered that sentence, I finally realized what I wanted to escape from. My whole life, I'd never once felt like I belonged in this world. Despite having good friends, a decent job, my life just felt as if it was a crime. As weird as it might sound, I wasn't supposed to be there. Though it seemed so obvious then, I'd never been able to define it so clearly. That was it. That was exactly the reason. How did you... How did you know? Because it's a simple fact, Gary Widmore. You don't belong here. I don't understand. How can you be so sure? If you so desire, I can show you. I didn't have to respond. The man, whoever he was, could read me like an open book. I put the gun down and just stared at him. Then, with a simple touch, everything turned dark. As my mind awoke once more, we were in a void. I saw my own body from afar, walking through an endless world of darkness. Time passed, but whether it was a second or a thousand years, I couldn't tell. Where are we going? I asked, but the man wouldn't respond. I was too far away from my words to reach him. 
Then, as I felt my mind fuse with the emptiness, the world came back into view. It was a town, or strange facility made solely out of grey concrete blocks. An emaciated woman sat down beside the dead body of a man. He lay there in a pool of dirty blood, with a slit throat appearing to be the cause of death. She cried over the loss of the man, but her eyes weren't fixed on the corpse. Instead, she wouldn't stop staring at a broken greenhouse, full of dried out plants and ruined vegetables. That was the only sound we could hear, the woman crying, in a world devoid of any sound. It was as if everything around her had been erased. No animals, no traffic, nothing. Beyond the concrete jungle, there was nothing save barren landscape. The air was unnaturally dry, and the sun seemed to be hidden behind a sheet of dark grey clouds. Hello? I tried to call out to the woman, but not a single sound emerged from my throat. She can't hear you, the pale man said. I walked over to her and tried to put a hand on her shoulder. Though I could feel her, I couldn't actually affect her in any way. She was like a solid object, and I had no power. Where are we? I asked. Bunker number 108, the last human embryonic regeneration facility on Earth. Everything seemed so basic, yet modern in the most dystopian way. Despite it being impossible, I knew exactly what had happened. We're in the future, I asked. The man nodded. And these people? Are the last of humanity. He touched me again, and suddenly we were standing atop the tallest structure at the facility. The barren ground beneath stretched endlessly far in all directions around us. There was a depression of the ground far off in the distance, only containing small puddles of muddled water. It quickly dawned on me that it used to be the ocean, dried out and rid of all life. This is your future, where mankind is heading. It was too much to comprehend. Not only had humanity reached its end, but the planet had basically fallen apart with all aspects of life. What year is it? Was all I could think to ask. He looked at me with an uncertain expression on his face. We don't know. There are small details, variables that change with each iteration of time, but the outcome is always the same. The planet dies and no matter how hard humanity tries, it will succumb to the never-ending passage of time. Your people never managed to leave this planet. Instead, they drew their last breath here at this facility, as they desperately tried to maintain the last plant life on Earth. In the end, your species will be forgotten by the universe with no impact on the fate of existence. I just stared at the dead landscape around us. 
The wind howled ominously through the concrete structures, and in the distance, we could still hear the woman cry. She was the last person on Earth, and soon she'd be dead. Humanity goes out with a faint whisper, I thought to myself. Dread filled my body, and I came to the harsh realization that we're absolutely unimportant in the grand scheme of things. But it didn't make me sad. It only made me angry. Why are you showing me this? I asked after a long moment of silence. Because I wanted you to listen to the sounds of your own extinction. Again, the pale man touched me, and the world faded away beneath my feet. We wandered through the void for another eternity, before we suddenly found ourselves in the streets of New York. The sounds of honking cars and people talking greeted us like a long-lost friend. In contrast to the emptiness we left behind in the future, it was pure bliss. Thousands of people walked on the streets, each of them with a full-fledged life, their own purpose to fulfill in life. There was a strange static-like aura surrounding them, one they couldn't notice themselves. Yet it was there, an energy I couldn't understand. As I admired their casual demeanor, I noticed the pitch-black silhouettes walking among the crowd. No one seemed to notice, but the more I looked, the more I saw. There must have been thousands of them. What are these things? The silhouettes are the people that could have been. People that don't exist this time around. The rest are the chosen ones for the current iteration of time. They were potential people. They were humans that belonged to a different reality or timeline. But how could I see them? Our job is to select the right people. For the past hundred million loops... We've tried to piece together a puzzle, all to prevent the future I showed you. But why? Because humanity had a greater destiny than what you saw. Something changed everything. An entity placed here on Earth with the sole purpose of destroying history. The words hardly came with any comfort but I couldn't understand why I'd been chosen. Of all the great people on Earth, why choose someone who didn't even belong? Why me? I finally asked. He just stared at me and answered the question with one of his own. Do you remember your parents? I was raised in an orphanage. They said I was found on the street as an infant, abandoned and close to death. No one knows where you came from? He asked. I... I suppose not. As we talked, we made our way down the street. The man explained to me what the static-like aura was. He said it was energy that kept people linked to reality. That without it, everyone would look like the silhouettes. Real, but not existing. Then... 
we passed by a store with freshly cleaned, polished windows. I looked at my own reflection, weirdly present among the rest of the people. We walked down the street as I tried to recall my childhood. As we passed a department store with freshly polished windows, the man stopped me and told me to look at myself in the reflection. Still, there was a massive difference between myself and the others. I didn't have an aura surrounding me. Even the man that had accompanied me through the bizarre trip had the same static around him. Why don't I have an aura? Because, unlike everyone else, you were never chosen to exist. In fact, until this very iteration, your presence on this planet remained unknown to us. You, Gary Widmore, are an anomaly that needs to be corrected. The implication had a sinister undertone. I wasn't supposed to exist. How could they correct that fact? What exactly does that mean? It means you have to be removed from time itself. Removed? Why didn't you just let me kill myself like I planned to? He sighed. It's not quite that simple. Your life has had impact on people. The good, the bad, and the seemingly unimportant. It all contributed to the world as it is. We have to make sure you never existed. His words made me recall a quote by David Eagleman. There are three deaths. The first is when the body ceases to function. The second is when the body is consigned to the grave. The third is that moment, sometime in the future, when your name is spoken for the last time. While the first two deaths hadn't bothered me all that much, the idea of being forgotten by everyone was a horrifying one. Everything I've ever done, it'll be erased? Only if you accept. And it could change the course of history. He nodded. How does that even work? Are you just going to erase me or split my body into atoms? I don't really understand how that would work. You'd become one of us. An agent. Everything you've done up until this point will be forgotten and removed, but you'll still have an impact on the world. Since you went undetected from us, we're hoping you can do the same against whatever is trying to destroy history. There won't be any proof I ever existed? The man paused for a moment as he mulled over what to respond. You can leave behind one thing. A story, an artifact, a letter. It'll be yours, but no one will know where exactly it came from. Your name will be turned into a tale, but at least it won't be completely forgotten. It was better than nothing, but it bothered me. Do you accept? The man asked. 
I nodded. Then it's time to get to work. I hope you enjoyed Listen to the Sounds of Your Extinction, as written by Richard Saxon and voiced by Evil Idol 2020 contestant number four, Chris Heron. Up next, we've got a third and final dose of the dreadful for you, written by author The Vespers Bell and performed by Evil Idol 2020 contestant number three, Tanya Hadro. In it, we'll yet again explore the farthest reaches of time and space, but this time from an altogether different angle. In our final tale tonight, we'll witness humanity's grand finale through the eyes of an ambitious Air Force officer that has boldly gone where no man or woman has gone before. And I'm not talking about outer space. Without further ado, I present to you, Skip to the End. Let me just get the obvious out of the way first. Yes, I've actually been to the future. No, don't ask me about the pandemic, or the climate crisis, or the next election, or next week's lotto jackpot. I've been to the far future, long after any of that had ceased to matter. It was billions of years, at least. It was the very end of the universe, I think. But it wasn't the end of everything. I should probably back up a little bit and explain how I got to the end of the universe. I'm an Air Force officer, and I was selected to be the test subject of what my superiors referred to as a chrononautical kitty hawk. Out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, relatively close to the Hawaiian Islands, there's a top-secret experimental particle collider. It's underwater, both for secrecy and so that they can use the ocean as a heat sink for the massive nuclear reactor that powers the thing. I wasn't privy to all the details, so I don't even know who's funding it. There were definitely a lot of non-Americans there, so I'm pretty sure it's an international collaboration. From what I was able to understand, the experiments they're doing there are meant to reveal the basic nature of time, whether it's a fundamental aspect of the universe, an emergent property of more elementary components, or just an illusion of our own limited perception. The Collider produced an unknown and, based on what the researchers told me, previously untheorized particle that caused bizarre temporal effects when they interacted with ordinary matter. For the time being, they were just calling them chronotons, since that's what time-traveling particles are called on Star Trek. When they saturated an object with these chronotons, it would vanish for a period of time, roughly proportional to its mass, and then reappear in the exact same space. Sometimes the object would be detectably hotter or colder, sometimes they'd be damaged, and on at least one occasion, not even in one piece. But as far as the scientists could tell, every atom they sent out came back, and never with an extraneous matter clinging along for the ride. The objects were clearly experiencing something during their missing time. But they couldn't send a probe, since chronotons would scramble any electronics, no matter what they did to protect it. It was decided they needed to send a human test subject to report back on what they encountered. 
I was chosen because I hit the exact sweet spot of having the necessary skills and temperament while also being sufficiently commonplace that, should I never return, my commanders would write it off as an acceptable losses. I was assured that the chronoton radiation was non-ionizing and that the tests they had run on biological samples showed no immediate or short-term ill effects. As for long-term effects, well, we just have to wait and see, wouldn't we? At this point, you may be asking yourself, what was I getting paid to expose myself to unknown radiation and get blasted to God knows how far into the future? The same Neil Armstrong got paid to go to the moon, Bubkiss. Absolutely nothing outside of my regular salary. I'm an Air Force officer after all, and putting my life on the line for the good of my country is all part of the job. I should be honored to have the privilege of being the first person sent to the future, they insisted. If the experiments were ever declassified, I'd be famous, immortalized even, and if I refused, I'd almost certainly be sent to a military prison for insubordination. So, back to the future it was. I stepped into the collider wearing a pressurized environmental hazard suit. This was necessary, not only out of concern for traveling to an unknown environment, but also because the interior of the collider needed to be evacuated of air to function properly. The collider itself was a hundred foot wide tunnel that stretched on for miles, paneled with shiny gray alloy that I had been told had to be invented just for this project. Every few hundred feet, there was a glowing, humming ring of classified tech encircling the perimeter, all of them pulsing in perfect synchrony. There was no sound in the airless tunnel, of course, but I could feel their thrumming vibration through my boots, and it was a sensation that I could only describe as humming. The rings were all interconnected by four evenly spaced conduits that ran the entire length of the collider, each pulsing with an orbing light which, in spite of the much greater distance, matched the RPM of the rings. I took my place on the clearly marked platform and looked up at the caged flashing lights that counted down the initiation sequence, protected from the chronotons by a recess in the collider wall. The near and total silence was unnerving. All I could hear was my own breathing. I didn't even have a radio in my suit since it would have just been scrapped by the chronoton wave. If there was any last minute instructions, they would only be conveyed through the display in front of me. As the countdown to full saturation ticked down, I started to see tiny golden lights forming in the space around me, whizzing around the collider at lightning speed. They were sparse at first, but after about a minute, they became so thick I could barely see through the haze. They passed through me like I wasn't even there, without producing any perceptible sensations as they did so. I couldn't see the countdown anymore, but when I felt my feet lift from the ground, I knew it was launch time. I slowly floated upwards for several seconds until I was in the dead middle of the collider and hung there for several seconds more. I'm not gonna lie, I was scared as hell, but I didn't panic or try to fight. What was happening was happening and I was long past the point of being able to do a damn thing about it. Without any sort of warning, I was catapulted forward at what felt like at least 5 Gs of force. The golden lights vanished along with the collider, the facility, the ocean, and the earth itself. I now passed through them as harmlessly as the chronotons had passed through me. I shot upwards, the earth beneath me seeming to spin at an impossible speed as I did so. 
The sun also receded, at a pace too quickly for the theory of relativity to allow. I understood that I was not moving at superliminal speeds, but rather that my arrow of time had been accelerated and what I took to be seconds were actually years, then centuries, then millennia, then eons. Faster and faster I went, passing through star systems in a fraction of an instant, so quickly that I orbited the entire galaxy once every second like I was caught on some kind of out-of-control galactical treadmill. Jane, stop this crazy thing. After God knows how long of that, time finally began to slow again, and I began to descend upon a black planet orbiting a white star. Somehow, intuitively, I understood that this was Earth, the sun had expanded to a red giant, charring the earth black as it did so, then shrunk to a white dwarf, left to slowly cool for the rest of its days. Modern science predicts that the expanding sun will actually consume the earth. Whether this prediction is false, or if our space-faring descendants succeeded in widening the earth's orbit, I don't know. From the high vantage point of space, I had deemed this dark earth long barren of any life, but upon groundfall, I saw that I'd erred in my judgment. I landed upon the earth on my feet as a cat would from a tree branch. My journey through time and space had done me no harm, and I was left to survey the ultimate fate of my homeworld. What I saw were still dunes of black and regolith. Long, long ago, the warming sun had evaporated the oceans and ruined the atmosphere for photosynthetic life. The forces of entropy and erosion had beaten down all mountains and man-made structures, grinding them to dust. I could not help but be reminded of the poem of Ozymandias, seeing everything lost to the global desert. The molten core had cooled, and the magnetosphere weakened, leaving a more powerful solar wind to irradiate the surface and gradually strip the atmosphere away. The red sun, though an infernal fury in its death throes, had long since diminished to the white dwarf that hung in the darkened sky now. Though what was left of the atmosphere would surely no longer be breathable to me were I to remove my helmet, the temperature was at least tolerable. All reason told me that nothing could have survived such a cascade of apocalypses. And yet, only a few hundred yards from where I stood, there was a single tree. If I had to guess, I'd say it was nearly a thousand feet tall. Its bark was black, but not burnt. Its dark leaves were sparse, but present, and many moon-white blossoms bloomed upon its branches. The tree cast a long shadow, like a sundial, and at its edge stood twelve evenly spaced humanoid statues in a circle, alternatingly male and female. They were large, but not enormous, each being approximately twelve times my own height. Each had been hewn from a different color of translucent crystal, exposing a luminescent network of veins and arteries lying within. Each statue held at least two orbs of light within themselves, one in their heads and one in their chests, while a lone statue, made in the image of a pregnant woman, held a third and much brighter orb in her massive belly. I staggered towards the figures in awe, thinking that they were some sort of memorial left long ago by the last humans something that could unironically bear the words, look upon my works, ye mighty, and despair. All of humanity's final collective genius put into crafting everlasting monuments of our existence that would stand until the end of time, a single last act of defiance against the uncaring and undying void.
that even when the earth had laid fallow for many times the length, it ever bore life, and all was reduced to ash. This one single testament, not only to our existence, but our exceptionality remained standing at the end of all things. I stopped when I was in reach of one of the statues, gazing up at it in wonder and reverence. I noted that what I thought had merely been an aura of light around it was in fact composed of some vaporous substance that actively recoiled from my presence. In an act that seemed blasphemously daring to me, I tentatively stretched out my glove hand and placed it upon the crystal surface. At the moment of contact, I felt a strange sensation flow through my body. It was neither pleasant nor painful, neither subtle or overwhelming, simply strange, and unlike any sensation I had felt before or since, with nothing I can compare it to. It was then that the statue turned its head to look down at me. Dumbfounded, I looked at the other eleven figures and saw that each was now staring directly at me, when before they had all been looking up at that great tree. I was hit by a sudden revelation then. This was not a monument left by the last men. These were the last men. The last men standing vigil around the last tree. They spoke to me then, with some form of telepathy. Not with words, but with concepts. The language of thought that my mind processed in words and imagery and feelings. I perceived that they were the last of our post-human descendants. Their bodies made of materials utterly alien to the natural universe, of which even our greatest intellects have yet to hypothesize about. Each of them alone possessed knowledge which dwarfed that of our entire civilization. Cognitive capacities beyond our own not only in degree but in kind, and godlike control over the forces of nature. In Faraday's, many thousands of such entities had once walked the earth alongside a diverse array of both traditionally human and radically post-human races, and millions more dwelt amongst the stars. But over the vast stretches of cosmic time, even their race had dwindled. Some had perished in astronomically rare and powerful cataclysms, or in combat with other titans. Most, though, had transcended to even greater forms than the ones that stood before me, and left our reality behind, as a hermit crab might discard a shell it had outgrown. Now, just the twelve before me were all that remained of their kind. They were not a random assembly of survivors, however but each an archetypical embodiment of human character. Looking from one to another, I understood the nature of each. There was the humble commoner, the innocent maiden, the mischievous trickster, the wise sage, the bold adventurer, the skilled huntress, the defiant rebel, the passionate artist, the brave hero, the carnal lover, the powerful king, and the caring mother each held within themselves that which mattered most to them, what they deemed best of humanity, what they had sworn to safeguard until the universe itself was no more, and that time was upon us now. I saw then in their minds the nature of the apocalypse before us, the big rip, the dark energy of the universe having grown ever greater, greater even than gravity, until millions of years ago, the Milky Way and every other galaxy in creation had come undone. The stars shooting off from their orbits and into the intergalactic void. Months ago, 
Solar systems have suffered the same fate, planets breaking off from their parent stars, the Earth only remaining by the designs of the Titans before me. Now, in the final moments, the Earth itself would fall apart, followed by exponentially smaller constituents of matter and then even space-time itself in a big rip singularity. Even the Titans would succumb to this apocalypse. But even in the face of their demise, I sensed that they still had hope. It was the mother who was the source of this hope. For the glowing light gestating within her womb was not a Titan child, but a new Big Bang singularity. Its design was born from the minds of each of the twelve Titans. Its form forged from their own essences. If they were successful, this new singularity would survive the Big Rip and then explode into a new universe all its own and they would be reborn as its gods. It was then that the earth beneath my feet began to shake, and I knew that it was time. The leaves and the flowers all fell from the tree, their wafting descent the final omen that life could not endure any longer, an omen the mother defied as she went into labor. The titans burst out into a hymn then, and in that moment their fate was the same as any other human. Knowing they were to die, with only faith that they would survive in some new form. Just as I thought that I too may be destroyed in the Big Rip Singularity, I started levitating again, and I knew that I was to return to my own time. Before I departed, however, the Trickster Titan plucked a single white blossom from the ground and placed it in my palm, closing my fist around it. He winked, and I was off. I flew upwards away from the Earth and backwards from the Big Rip, repeating my trip around the galaxy in reverse, until I returned to the blue and green Earth around a yellow sun. My return landing, though, was not nearly as smooth as my first. The instant my feet touched the platform, a shockwave cascaded through the collider, each ring violently exploding and showering the tunnel with shrapnel and strange plasma fires. The collider walls burst open, and seawater came rushing in, sweeping me away and upwards towards the surface. I let go of the flower during all of this, losing it to underwater eddies. I knew the flower was the cause of the explosion. None of the other tests had ever brought anything back with them. The trickster had used his power to give me an impossible gift, and the cost was the destruction of the entire facility. I wasn't the only survivor, fortunately, but the facility was destroyed beyond repair. When I was debriefed, I told them about the flower about everything, but they didn't believe me. They took the absence of the flower as proof that the whole thing was a fever dream, that nothing I had experienced was real. I felt a bit like Cassandra then, having been gifted with a divine revelation that no one would believe. But on the bright side, it means they didn't fault me with the destruction of the facility. I don't know if they intended to rebuild the facility or not, but if they do, they'll surely think long and hard before risking another human test subject. Billions of dollars for a weird drug trip is a bit pricey after all. After a battery of tests and a lengthy observation period, I was released and allowed to return to active duty, deemed to be none the worse for wear after my brief visit to the end of time. I also, of course, had to sign a non-disclosure agreement, swearing to never breathe a word about any of it to anyone. So why am I telling you this now? because the flower came back to me. Last night, while I was on leave, I was taking a stroll by myself down the beach. 
My experience with the Titans still weighed heavily on my mind. I'm sure it always will. I was constantly re-examining everything I had witnessed, everything they had told me, forever uncertain if I was interpreting all of it correctly or if it even really happened. I wondered if the Titans had been successful in creating a new universe, if they had been reborn to it, or if they had failed their greatest trial and were torn apart with everything else, leaving only true existential nothingness in their wake. I was walking just close enough to the ocean for the waves to caress my feet when, right in front of me, an incoming wave deposited a flower, glowing like moonlight. In disbelief, I dropped to my knees and scooped it up in my hands, vigorously scrutinizing it, lest I be deceived by wishful thinking and a mere coincidence. But there was no doubt in my mind that this was the same flower, the flower from the last tree the trickster titan had given me. A radiant, silvery white lotus blossom, stamens of metallic hydrogen, and speckles of the starlight upon its flawless petals. It had returned to me. I know not why the trickster gave it to me, but it appears it is not a gift that can be discarded so easily. I had not given much thought to the tree before then, to be honest. If anything, I had thought its survival a mere token act of conservationism by the Titans. But the gift of its flower and its impossible return indicated that it was more than this. Did the tree serve some part of the Titans' ultimate plan? Did taking the flower back to the present with me aid in their goals? Am I supposed to do something with it? I can't know for certain, of course, but I think the answer to all of those is yes. Beyond that, I have no idea. I wish that the trickster had given me more than a wink in instructions. Maybe my mortal limitations are to be blamed for being so obtuse, but it seems if they were so smart, they could have found a way to make their intentions clear to me. As much as I would like to believe I'm the chosen one, meant to enact the will of the gods to ensure the salvation of our reality, there's one doubt that lingers in my mind. Why was it the trickster titan who gave me the flower? If it had been their collective will that I take the flower back to my own time, then nearly any one of them, other than the trickster, would have been a more suitable gift bearer, save maybe for the rebel. Was it simply that he was nearest to me at the moment, or is it not more likely that he was playing a trick on me or his fellows by giving me the flower? Or is it merely that my mission requires some uncertainty, some doubt, some lack of any clear directive to succeed? Over and over again, I've been asking myself why it was the trickster who gave me the flower. The only answer that comes to me is in a quote from the author Neil Gaiman. Of course it was Loki. It's always Loki. I hope you enjoyed Skip to the End, as written by the Vespers Bell and voiced by Evil Idol 2020 contestant number three, Tanya Hadro. Thank you for joining us for tonight's episode of Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Don't forget, all of tonight's performances featured competitors from this year's 2020 Evil Idol Horror Voice Acting Competition, which is being hosted on our official Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel as we speak, and which will be running over the course of the next few months. If you enjoyed the performances tonight, visit our YouTube channel today 
and cast your vote on the entries for tonight's featured contestants and the other entries in the competition. Again, you can find Chilling Tales for Dark Nights in the Evil Idol competition on YouTube. Just search Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube on any search engine or visit ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click the Evil Idol link on the navigation to see a current roster, contestant profiles, and links to all of the performances thus far. As always, we and the candidates appreciate your support. Also, as a reminder, don't forget to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review in a kind word, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, a production of Chilling Entertainment and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted by yours truly, Steve Taylor. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Roshek. Logo by Craig Roshek. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? We take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at chillingtalesfordarknights.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to us. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. We'll be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience 
and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.